this time, children ages three to six are dismissed for Children's Church. I think sometimes what's lost to us in that story we just watched is that in that time, a king really had the prerogative that if he ordered that baby to be cut in half right then and there, it would have happened. So this was a real scenario that the, that the people were thinking about here, that this could actually happen. He could be serious. And uh, that's just, it just adds another element to that story that makes that hit home, the time they were living in, that the authority of the king was absolute. Whatever he ordered would be done. And yet God gave him wisdom to do, to do what was right. And, uh, and the, not only was the baby's life spared, but the true mother was also blessed through that as well. Let's take a moment now to once more pray as we prepare to enter God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that it is so direct, so clear to understand, and yet the, the implications of it are deep and many. And so I pray, Lord, that as we look at this, again, very concise passage and all that it entails, give us understanding, give us insight by your spirit Would you most of all bring conviction and an obedient heart, Lord, to respond, each one of us, to what you would call us to, both personally and that together what you call us to as a church. May we respond in obedience and faith. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this morning we are continuing in the Gospel according to Mark into part four, which I've entitled, The King's Fisherman. Now, the story is told that Mark Twain loved to fish, but that he hated to catch fish. Now, that may sound like a bit of a contradiction, that you love to go fishing, but you hate to catch fish. Now, uh, if that was a problem for him, he should have just been me, because that's never a problem for me. I I can never catch fish. But nonetheless, though this seems like a contradiction, there was a very good reason for it. You see... Mark Twain, he went fishing, he said, simply to relax beside the pond, but to actually catch fish meant work. You know, he had to reel it in, and there was all the the work that went along with it. So for him, a perfect day fishing was to go relax beside the pond and not catch a thing. However, when he decided one day that he'd just go relax beside the pond with no fishing pole in hand, then the people who also came along saw, oh, he's just relaxing there. I'm going to go bother him, and I'll talk to him. And, well, that interrupted his relaxing time. And so he, he had to come up with a solution to this problem. How could he go relax beside the pond without catching fish and without having people bother him? And so his solution was he would, he would go there, And he would drop his fishing line into the water so everyone could clearly see that, yes, he was fishing, leave him alone, but he'd never catch a fish. How? There was no hook on the line. Just drop a line in the water with no hook. Now, as I said, if Mark Twain had my luck at catching fish, he wouldn't have had any problem even if he had 12 hooks in the line or in the water. But we'll save the rest of the fishing talk for a little later in the sermon. First, we'll pick up the narrative in Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. There we read this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee 
proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the very first thing we notice here is that at some point, shortly after Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, John the Baptist was arrested. Now, Mark basically throws this in as an aside. He doesn't give us any immediate details as to why he was arrested. Later on in Mark chapter 6, we're given those details, and so we'll look at them in a later time. But now as John the Baptist exits, as it were, stage left, this allows Jesus to take center stage. With the result being that those same people, remember, all of the Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem had gone out to John in the wilderness. They had heard him preach. Most of them, many of them, had been baptized for the repentance of their sins. And now those same people who had heard John as he prepared the way for the Lord are now, John's out of the way, Jesus is here, and he's preaching, and now they're listening to him preach almost the exact same sermon. And it went something like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I'm sure he would have had some sub-points to this, but this is the message that John preached and that Jesus is now on the scene preaching the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, while this is almost the exact same sermon as John, Jesus' sermon has one important distinction. For while John said that the kingdom was near or very close to arriving, and so he was saying, get ready for it. It's it's right around the corner. In contrast, Jesus declared, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So he's saying now it's not just right around the corner. It's here. The time has come. So in other words, he's saying the wait is over. It's arrived. It's here. So the question becomes, are you in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? If it's here, where are you? Where is your citizenship? Now, what exactly did this mean for the people who were listening to Jesus' sermon? Well, perhaps more than any other subject, we see it throughout the Gospels. Jesus preached about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, over and over again. Most of his parables were linked to something like, the kingdom of heaven is like... And then he would tell a parable. Over and over again, he talked about this kingdom. And so it's very important for us to have a, at least a basic understanding of how those Old Testament ears of his original audience would have under, understood his referencing the kingdom so often. So for the Jewish people who were steeped in the teachings of the Old Testament prophets, their understanding was that God's long-awaited Messiah also known as the son of David. He would one day come to restore the nation of Israel to its former glory and would physically usher in the reign and rule of God upon the earth and his, and his throne would reside in Jerusalem on Zion's hill. Now they, they gleaned all of this from the Old Testament prophets. And so on, on most of these points, they weren't entirely wrong. In fact, they had a lot of it right. However, there were a few pieces in this prophecy, a few key pieces that they often misunderstood or just overlooked. For instance, one of these key prophecies was in Isaiah 53, which foretold that before the Messiah would usher in the physical kingdom of God on earth, he would first usher in the spiritual kingdom by dying as the perfect lamb for the sins of the people. 
For quite simply, sinful people cannot be citizens of God's perfect kingdom in which no sin can dwell. So you see, if Jesus had come and just ushered in God's physical kingdom on earth and said, the qualification for citizenship is perfection, who could have entered it? Who would have been allowed in? Not one. Only Jesus would have populated that kingdom alone, the only perfect one. And so the sin problem had to be dealt with first. For you see, both they and we would not be allowed to enter this kingdom until our sin has been dealt with. However, to the Jewish mindset of that time, their belief that the Messiah's arrival would immediately usher in God's physical kingdom of heaven upon earth, well, it was just so ingrained in their thinking that even Jesus' own disciples couldn't shake it. They, they thought constantly that Jesus was going to usher in the physical kingdom at any moment. And we see that throughout the Gospels where even James and John at one point has, have their, their mother ask Jesus if once it happens, they could sit at his left and right hand in his throne room. You know, that, that was so ingrained in their mindset that this physical kingdom was about to be established. And so when Jesus went out preaching about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, what the people were hearing when Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, they were hearing in their own translation, those Romans are going down, finally. Israel is going to be restored to the pinnacle, just as when King Solomon sat on the throne, and Jesus will reign as the king on the throne of David forever. So in that mindset, when most of them heard the first half of Jesus' sermon, the time is now, it's here, they're excited. How could they not be? Israel's been waiting for this for literally centuries. There's so much excitement. However, we see the majority of them failed to truly understand, let alone respond to the second half of Jesus' message, which was, so repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. For you see, most of them wanted the kingdom without having to repent. However, before we look down our noses at those first century Jews, we must ask, are we that much different today? For just as it was back then, the sort of repentance that God calls us to today is not easy. It's not a half-hearted token repentance. For it's not just enough to confess our sins and then say that we're sorry. Oh, sure, I'm a sinner. Okay, I'm sorry for it. Let's, let's get on with it. No, true repentance means that we must actively turn away from our sin and towards God. We must actively turn away from our sin and towards God. Just for example, take a bank robber, for instance. Let's say a bank robber robs a bank, but he's caught in the very act He's, he's arrested, he goes on trial, he's before the judge, and he says, yeah, I did it. He confesses it, he's guilty, and, and you know, he throws in there, I'm so sorry, so sorry. The judge says, yeah, we'll take that into account. He sentences him to a pretty lenient sentence. He's in, you know, he's in prison for a short time, he's got really good behavior. He says over and over again, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And, and so they're like, you know what, he, he seems sincere. Let's knock off more time for good behavior. And finally, he's released from prison. But then let's just say on the very day he's released, he goes right back to bank robbing. The very same day. 
Has he truly repented? He used the right language. He confessed it. He was guilty. He said he was sorry over and over again. But has he repented? No, he has not. His actions prove that whatever came out of his mouth, whatever he said, it, it, it was not true repentance. Sure, he was sorry he'd been caught, but his heart and mind had not truly changed. So you see, true repentance acknowledges God's word concerning our sin. But it not only confesses it, saying, sure, you caught me, I'm a sinner. It's not only that confession, but it's then taking that step further to agree with God that this sin deserves death. And so in order to turn away from death and towards life, I must repent, meaning turning away from it and towards Jesus in faith. This true repentance is always the first response to the gospel that God demands. And it cannot be skipped. Repentance must come first and it cannot be skipped over. For belief in the gospel without repentance remains unbelief. Let me say that again. Belief in the gospel without repentance remains unbelief. For as Jesus plainly declared in this order, repent and believe in the gospel. There's no equation where repentance does not come first. It must and always come first. Now, I want to share with you a true story of the single deadliest aviation disaster in history. And it happened way back in 1977 in the Canary Islands. Two Boeing 747 jumbo jets had been diverted to the Tenerife airport where they both landed to refuel before heading off once more. Now, sometime later, the KLM jumbo jet was ready to depart. And so, packed with passengers, it was at full capacity. It taxied down to the end of the fog-shrouded runway where it turned around for takeoff. However, at the same time, a Pan Am jumbo jet piloted by a Captain Victor Grubbs. He mistakenly thought that the KLM jet had already taken off and cleared the runway. And so he too began to taxi down the same runway. And because of the thick fog, neither of the two crews or captains could see each other. However, they were now headed straight towards one another. Well, the KLM jet then began its takeoff run, picking up speed, as just then Captain Grubbs finally saw the KLM jet roaring straight towards him through the fog. He desperately turned left, trying to get out of the way, but it was too late. For as the KLM jet lifted off, clawing for air, it hit the top of the Pan Am jet, resulting in a horrific and fiery collision which killed everyone on board the KLM jet and most of the occupants of the Pan Am jet as well. All told, there were 583 fatalities. Again, the single most deadly aviation accident in history till this very day. There were only 61 survivors in the front section of the Pan Am jet, which included Captain Grubbs. And as Captain Grubbs visited the scene of the crash the next day, and all the investigators were coming to see what had been the cause, he wept aloud, and he was heard to say repeatedly, If only I had turned sooner. If only I had turned sooner. 
Now, my friends, Jesus' call to repent and believe is open today. It is wide open, but it will not remain wide open forever. For just as with the two jets, we too are on a collision course with God's judgment. For again, that is what our sin deserves. Hebrews 9 verse 27 puts it bluntly. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Therefore, it is incredibly dangerous for us to delay our turn. To delay our turn, our repentance, away from sin and towards our only way of salvation, which is in Christ alone. For the fact is, none of us know the day of our appointment. Right? We don't know the day of our appointment. We might know the day of our doctor's appointment, but we don't know the day of our appointment with death. But every one of us has it. It is appointed unto man to die once, and then comes the judgment. Now, for most of us who are, who are maybe on the, the younger side of life, we think, you know, well, I've got till at least I'm 90. You know, I've got lots of time before I need to, to think about those things. But the fact is, for many of us, that appointment is going to come much sooner than we expect, perhaps even surprisingly. So I urge you today, do not be amongst those who on Judgment Day are heard to say like that captain, if only I had turned sooner. There is a time for turning, and that time is now. Today is the day of salvation, so repent and believe in the gospel. Now we move forward from our need to repent and believe onto the next stage that we read in Mark's gospel. And that next stage, once we have repented and believed, is to follow and to fish. To follow and to fish. Let's continue on into verse 16 in Mark 1. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now the Sea of Galilee is located about 60 miles north of Jerusalem and is roughly 13 miles long and 18 miles across at its widest point. The Jordan River flows into the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and then it exits from the southern tip of the sea where it meanders its way down to the Dead Sea. Now the water of the Sea of Galilee is actually, it's not a sea, it's a bit of a misnomer, it's actually a freshwater lake and the water is, is bright, it's sweet, it's clear, and it contains many different varieties of fish, which resulted, of course, in many fishing villages being built around the sea. So back in Jesus' day, there were somewhere around 30 towns or fishing villages, Jewish ones, that were located around the Sea of Galilee. And on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, in the region known as the Galilee, was the prominent fishing town that became known as Capernaum. So Capernaum, located on the north bank, was also right along a major trade route, a land trade route. And so between the, the fishing and the trade coming through Capernaum, it became sort of a hub of the northern region of Galilee. There was also a Roman garrison located there, and so there was all sorts of activity in this town of Capernaum, and that was Andrew and Simon Peter's hometown. So now, in this setting, probably just maybe a mile or two along the seashore from the town of Capernaum, 
Somewhere along there, it's just another day at work for Simon and Andrew. And I want you to try to visualize it with me as we pick up this story, which as Matt pointed out, it's, it's very easy to understand, but the surprising outcome, I want us to try to put ourselves in their shoes for a moment and visualize this. So Simon and Andrew, they're, they're fishing and then they're pulling their nets ashore. They're cleaning their nets. And the day is just like many other days that they've spent in their lives. They've been fishermen since they were boys, following after their dads. And so here they are. They've already been out fishing the whole night. We know from the other Gospels that they're a little down because they hadn't yet caught anything. But as seasoned fishermen, this isn't the first time that they've experienced coming home without anything in hand. And so they also know it won't be the last time that this is going to happen. But even so, it's a little bit dejecting when you've put in hours of work and have nothing to show for it. And so that's the mindset they were in that morning. And there they sat, cleaning their nets, a monotonous chore, but one that has to be done. But then as they look up along the seashore, there's a lone figure walking towards them. And here, Andrew, who had previously been a disciple of John the Baptist, is the first to recognize who it is. It's the traveling rabbi. Jesus of Nazareth. For Andrew had been there the day that John had seen Jesus and declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now here he is, interrupting their very ordinary day, walking straight towards them. And so at this point, Peter and Andrew must have begun wondering, Is Jesus just passing by or is he looking for us? And if he's looking for us, what would he want with us? We're not highly educated. We're not at the the temple or even at the synagogue. We're just lowly fishermen. What would a rabbi be looking for us for? But then it becomes clear, yes, he is walking directly towards them. And he stops in front of them and he surveys the scene. There's their boat pulled up on the shore, empty, not a fish in sight. Then he looks at their empty nets, again, no fish around. But then he looks at each of them in turn and simply but firmly says, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now at this, Peter and Andrew, they look at Jesus. And then they look at each other in wonder. For they understood what he meant, at least in part. That as a rabbi, Jesus had come to call them to become his students, to become his disciples, which meant to follow him. Now, it was an honor just to be asked, but they also knew that this came at an immediate cost. They had to leave their boat, their nets, and their livelihoods behind. For upon Jesus' invitation, they instinctively knew that his call demanded an immediate response. This was not a situation where they could just take more time to go home and talk it over with the family. They knew that it was now or never. And so just like that, both Peter and Andrew had made up their minds, for at once they got up, they left their nets, and they followed him. Now just what was it about Jesus that so immediately drew them in? Now this we can only guess. Was it that Andrew had heard John say about Jesus being the Lamb of God? 
down at the Jordan River. Certainly that played into it. Was it the the wild hope that he could in fact be the long-awaited Messiah? Certainly they had heard the simple message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, that must have played a part. But there was something more in that moment, something that we can only wonder at, and that is Jesus himself. The authority in his voice, the look in his eyes, the presence of God in the flesh standing before them, making a personal appeal, you come and follow me. Whatever it was, whatever the combination, the drawing of the Spirit, the the burning in Simon Peter and Andrew's hearts, whatever it was, it sparked something radical and drastic. Something that that morning they probably would have laughed at had you entered the scenario that you're going to leave halfway through work, you're going to leave your boat behind, your nets behind, your livelihood behind, and you're just going to go off into the blue, not knowing where it's going to end. You're going to do it. They would have laughed at you. And yet in that moment, that's exactly what they do. They left it all behind, and they started to follow Jesus. Their legs were moving. Jesus was in front of them, and they were following. Well, the very first place they go is a little further down the shoreline, where Jesus likewise approached their fellow fishermen, James and John, and the same scene replays itself once more, and once more, we can only wonder at James and John immediately leaving it all to follow him, but that's exactly what they do. The only difference for their scene was that James and John's father, Zebedee, he was there as well, and so he was left behind to tend the boats and the nets alone, And watch his two sons walk away following their new rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Now where were they going? Did Jesus tell them the destination? Did he say, here's the itinerary, here's what to expect ahead? No, they had no clue. They'd only been given one instruction, I will make you fishers of men. That's all they had to go on. They didn't know where they were going But all they knew was that wherever Jesus led, they were going to follow. That's it. He was the rabbi. They were the students. He was the master. They were the disciples. Wherever he led, they would follow. Now, as we take this all in, we can't help, and I can't help but be amazed and impressed with just this immediate and radical commitment that Jesus inspired in these men. Ordinary men, no different than any of us. Just regular guys. And yet in that moment, they're willing to just say, we're leaving everything we know of our lives and our routines and our work behind, and we're going to go into the blue because this man is worth following. It inspires us. So what was it that so inspired these men? Well, that we're going to unpack as we move forward. But as we think about the equivalence for us today, you know, this would be like if, if you're a farmer. This would be like Jesus showed up while you're on the combine or in the tractor and says, all right, it's time. Follow me. And you just do. You leave it. Or, or if you're, you're at a desk, you work in an office, he shows up midday, you're at your desk, you're at your laptop, and he says, hey, it's time. Follow me. Or, or, or you're a contractor, you're on the work site. He just shows up and says, it's time to go. And you go. Whatever scenario you want to paint, put yourself in that place. What would you do? 
If Jesus showed up at your workplace, in your everyday ordinary life, and said, hey, follow me, I've got a job for you, how would you respond? Well, as we ponder that, the disciples' response, that immediately they got up and they followed him, it impresses upon us a very important truth. And this truth is that Jesus does not call us to casual discipleship, but to costly discipleship. Jesus does not call us to casual discipleship. He didn't say to the guys, hey, I got an itinerary for you that you can show up at the synagogue next Sabbath and I'll meet you there. But meanwhile, get your workday done. That's not how it worked. It was immediate. It's now. Now or never. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed out in his book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote, Jesus does not call us to cheap grace. He calls us to a costly discipleship. And in a way, there's this paradox in our faith. For on the one hand, grace is free, and it costs us nothing. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. It's only a gift that can be received. But on the other hand, it then costs us everything. For our Lord's call to come, follow me, requires our full surrender to him. And elsewhere, he he puts out the invitation, come and die with me. For if you die with me, you will also live with me. And so we have this paradox. Free, yet costs us everything. Our full surrender. It includes our livelihoods and all that we have and all that we are. Yes, even our very lives into his hands for him to do with as he sees best. For his purposes and for his ultimate glory. As one theologian called this paradox... He called it the difference between absolute gift and absolute demand. And I think that too often we hear the absolute gift and we we focus on that and we love that because, again, it's free. But then we fail to hear the absolute demand. And we want the grace and yet too often we ignore the cost of discipleship. But those four simple fishermen that day, they made no such mistake. For they immediately understood that Jesus was not inviting them to become mere supporters or spectators, but active disciples. For Jesus made that clear when he said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now I think that we can safely say at this point, those four fishermen had truly repented of their sins They had believed in Jesus at least as much as they were able in their limited understanding to to grasp at that point. And so then from their limited understanding, from their limited faith, when Jesus called them to follow and to fish, even so their hearts and their minds were ready and willing to listen, to obey, and to follow. Now, how would they have understood Jesus' explanation that he was going to make them fishers of men? How would they have understood that? Well, I think the meaning is clear. As Jesus spoke using a fishing metaphor that they would have immediately understood, that they would no longer be using a net to catch fish, but that now they would be using their words to catch men, so that those men might too repent, believe, and become followers of Jesus. So in other words, if Jesus was in fact 
As they suspected, the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, who would usher in the kingdom of heaven upon earth, then yes, he would be its king, and they would be his fishermen. Now in the same way, if you have already repented and believed in Jesus, then you too are also called by Jesus to follow and to fish for people. For just as Andrew, Peter, James, and John, we too are called to be the king's fishermen. Perhaps this fable will help illustrate our calling as well as its challenges. Long ago and far away, there was once a small kingdom next to the sea that had a dangerous coastline. And this coastline was filled with jagged rocks hidden just below the surface, which caused many shipwrecks. And so the king decided that at last something needs to be done to try to rescue the survivors of those wrecks when they happen. And so he commissioned the very first royal rescue station with a single instruction. Go out on the waters and rescue as many people as possible. That was it. That was all. That was their mission. Now, to call it a station was a bit of an exaggeration, as it was really at the beginning just a crude little hut with only one boat and a few devoted members. But still, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Soon, a large shipwreck after a great storm happened. The ship was wrecked upon the rocks during the storm, and the station had its first big rescue, and it plucked many of its survivors from the cold, icy waters. Now, some of the people saved that day were so grateful that they wanted to join the station themselves, while other of the survivors gave some money to help buy more supplies, and, and others who went out, they just shared the good news of what this rescue station was doing and how they had been saved by it. And so, soon a new boat was bought and a new rescue crew was trained, and it doubled the rescue station's capabilities. But then, some of the members of the station became unhappy that the little station was so crude and crowded and so well they all chipped in together and they upgraded to a bigger and better looking building that more properly reflected the title of being a royal rescue station and so over time other upgrades happened as well more boats were were bought more crews were trained they replaced the emergency cots with beds proper beds the, the crude chairs in there were, were replaced with real furniture, leather couches. The lounge area was then decorated beautifully, and it quickly became a popular gathering place for its members. Soon, fewer of the original rescue crew, however, were quite as interested in going out to sea themselves on rescue missions anymore, and so they began to hire more crews and would pay them to actually do that hard and dangerous work of going out on the water. And so around this time, a large ship filled with many passengers wrecked off the coast. And so those hired crews, they brought in boatload after boatload of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. But the survivors were from an impoverished kingdom. And so they were dirty, and they were sick, and they were malnourished. And so now the, the station and its members were in an uproar. They simply could not allow such filthy people inside their beautiful new royal rescue station to soil their new beds and scuff the floors and ruin the furniture. So they quickly came up with a solution. They would make a temporary shower outside the station where those shivering shipwreck survivors could be cleaned up before coming inside. But then another problem arose of where to put them all. 
They quickly ran out of beds and they had to put survivors on their leather couches in the members' lounge. And so finally, an emergency meeting was called at which many of the members voiced that, you know what, it's time to stop the station's rescue operations altogether. It's simply too much work and, and we can't rescue everyone anyways. People still drown. The argument was made. But some of the original members, the ones who had been directly commissioned by the king himself, they stubbornly insisted that the rescue operation was their primary mission. And in fact, it was the very reason that the king had commissioned his station in the first place. And so after much debate, a sort of compromise was reached. If survivors happened to wash up on the shore, they would still be helped. But the rescue boats would no longer go out to sea and search for them. And so for a time, this seemed to solve the problem. For a while, the odd shipwreck survivors still managed to somehow make it to shore and were then helped by the station, and with great fanfare because of how rare it now was. They no longer had to deal with being overrun with survivors from the big shipwrecks. But now there was just one problem. Those people still needed rescuing, and those people were still drowning out at sea as a result. And so when news of this new arrangement finally made its way to the king, he was furious, and he traveled to the station, and he rebuked the entire station, saying, I commissioned you for only one task, to go out on the waters and rescue as many people as possible. My command has not changed. So now every last one of you, recommit yourselves to the mission of rescuing the drowning. For if you will not, I will find those who will. Now, just as in this fable, Jesus, our King, he commanded his disciples two simple commands, follow me and fish. Follow me and fish for people. And that command has not changed to this very day. It has not changed and it still applies to us We have our great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. It still applies. The command has not changed. And also the circumstances have not changed. For there remain all around us, yes, a shipwrecked world. Full of a sea of people who are still drowning in their sins. People who need rescue. People who need Jesus. And this church has been commissioned by Jesus to be a royal rescue station. And so that means that each of us, its members, has an important role to play in order to fulfill that mission given to us by our King. So may we not lose sight of that. And if in any way, both personally or collectively, we have lost sight of that, may we today recommit ourselves to not only repent and believe, but yes, to follow and to fish as the king's royal fishermen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our king, and you have given us a command, a royal commission, to be fishers of men, to follow you, whatever the cost and wherever you lead, to fulfill that mission. And furthermore, Lord, you have seen fit in your will to place us, this church, as a rescue station here in this town, in this time in history. And we have been given that same commission and command to seek and to save the lost, 
to keep going out, to not be content to just stay where it's safe and secure, but to be willing to go out, even when it's dangerous, even if it costs us something, to seek and to save those who need rescue, for it is everyone apart from you. And so, Lord, as we have heard your words, we have repented of our sins, and we have put our faith in you, we pray, Lord, that the outcome would be following and fishing, and that through our efforts, Lord, many would be saved. And we pray, Lord, for those efforts, even as they are being planned and have begun even this, this coming summer, we pray for those efforts through Bible camp, through vacation Bible school, through day camps, and all the other ways, Lord, people are going out on the waters to seek and to save those who need you, who need a rescue. May we be those ready and willing to not only go out and rescue, but to give a welcome to those who have been brought in, to be those who will who will show compassion and kindness and care and to do the work of discipling so that they too can go out and be rescuers as well. And so we pray, Lord, work in our church, work in our hearts, that we would be willing to, like James and John, Andrew and Peter, immediately hear your word to follow and to obey. Work this out in our hearts, we pray, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.